Good morning. You can have a seat. That was a beautiful time of worship. All right. Well, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here, if you don't know me. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Acts today. We're almost done, which is pretty cool. You can turn to Acts chapter 28. We're going to be in the first 10 verses. Before we jump into that, I want to tell you guys a little bit of a story. I'm a history nerd, so bear with me for a minute. Um, In the late 1500s, as North and South America were being discovered and explored by the European countries... There was a man named Sir Walter Raleigh who was growing a name for himself as an explorer. Sir Walter was credited with being a person of great bravery and honor and faith. He was highly favored. He was British and he was highly favored by the queen and was given charge over several very important missions for the crown, including founding the British colonies in Virginia. Now, as the Spanish continued to colonize and explore South America, Sir Walter got his hands on an account by one of these Spanish explorers about a fabled city of gold called El Dorado. Many of you have probably heard of it. Now, supposedly, this Spanish explorer had been taken blindfolded to this city and then been shown all of its wonders, all of the gold coating the buildings and the streets uh, before he escaped, but then was unable to find this city again. So Sir Walter being an explorer, decided that he thought he could find the city. So he convinced the queen to let him lead an expedition to South America to find El Dorado. He failed. He didn't find it. uh, And when he returned to England, unfortunately for Sir Walter, he began to fall out of favor with the queen, partially because of his failure and partially because people, his enemies started to accuse him of being a spy for the Spanish. Now, Sir Walter decided to, in an attempt to regain his place, his favor with the queen, he decided to write an account of his own explorations. He heavily fictionalized his journey, claiming that he had, in fact, discovered the location of El Dorado, and he and he alone knew how to find it. Now, this account of Sir Walter's became famous throughout the European countries, and it, and it helped to fuel a craze in Europe to find El Dorado. Now, eventually, later in his life, Sir Walter convinced the then king of England to allow him to make a second expedition. So he gathered all of his supplies and people, he made his second expedition, and once again, he failed to find this El Dorado, the city of gold, because it didn't exist, and only succeeding in getting his son killed in the process and almost starting a war with the Spanish. Upon his return once again to England, he was imprisoned and a short time later beheaded for his failures. What happened to Sir Walter? How did everything go wrong for this man who was highly favored, supposedly full of faith and incredibly brave? I think our passage in scripture today will help us to answer this question because Sir Walter believed in something and that belief shaped his life. In his case, 
His belief in this lost city of gold shaped his life, causing him to spend both his life and other people's lives on that belief. His belief caused him to fictionalize this rumor and to fuel this rumor that caused widespread colonization and murder of countless natives in South America. And eventually, his beliefs caused the death of both his son and then himself. See, what we believe is important. It fuels how we live our lives. It impacts the people around us. We're going to see that play out in our passage today. So let's jump into this in Acts chapter 28. Just a reminder where we're at. So Paul is a prisoner of Rome. He's on his way to Rome to stand trial before Caesar himself. On the way, the ship that Paul is on gets shipwrecked. And through um, some of Paul's dealings with the sailors and the uh, soldiers, and through the faithfulness of God, the people on the ship are saved, and they land on this island. And we pick up right there. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 28, it says, Once safely ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness. They lit a fire and took us all in, since it was raining and cold. As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the local people saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to one another, This man, no doubt, is a murderer. Even though he has escaped the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But he shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected that he would begin to swell up or suddenly drop dead. After they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Publius's father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him, and praying and laying his hands on him, he healed him. Now after this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. So they heaped many honors on us, and when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let me pray, and then we'll continue. Jesus, we ask you to illuminate your word to us. We ask you to open our hearts, open our minds to your word that you would speak into us, that you would write your words on our hearts and you would change us. Jesus, I thank you that we get to gather together in worship, that we can sit together and proclaim how good you are. Please change us. Please allow us to walk out of this place different than when we came in. Amen. All right, so we have this story. Last week, Pastor Jim uh, walked us through the storm and the shipwreck that Paul and the others on his ship faced. And Jim showed us that it connected to us, that we all have storms in our lives, but following God's will and calling is worth it despite the storms. We saw that Paul's faith in his calling allowed him to trust God and to lead the people on the ship to safety, despite the storm and the shipwreck. 
And in our passage this week, we pick up right there. We see that Paul, the sailors, and the Roman soldiers come on the shore in this beach in desperate need. And the people on the island of Malta show up to help. They build a fire, and while they are building this fire, Paul jumps in to help. He gathers some wood, and he's bit by this deadly viper. Now, the people of Malta immediately assume that he's been judged by their god, Justice, to die and wait for him to swell up. Paul, however, just shakes the viper off into the fire and moves on. When he doesn't, in fact, swell up and die, the people decide that he must be a god. After this, we see Paul and his companions invited into the home of Publius, the leader of the island, where Paul goes on to heal Publius's father, and then they stay for several months with Paul healing everyone on the island who has illness or disease and preaching the gospel to these people. I want us to start by looking at the people of Malta a little bit and their beliefs. First off, we know, based on history, that the island of Malta was a very wealthy place at this point in time. The people of Malta were Italian and Greek in culture and were heavily involved in the worship of several goddesses, including Astarte, Juno, and Dice. Upon seeing Paul, his Roman captors, and the sailors in need, the people of Malta were quick to show kindness to them, taking them in and building a large fire. However, when they see Paul get bitten by this viper, they are also quick to judge him, that he must be a murderer, and that their goddess, Dice, the goddess of justice, is enacting that justice upon him. I think that's a reasonable thing for these people to think with their beliefs in this culture. Paul is clearly a prisoner of these Romans, so he's done something wrong, and seeing him escape the shipwreck, this terrible tragedy, and then immediately get bitten by this poisonous viper is definitely a sign that he must have done something awful that he needs to be punished for. Again, I think this is a reasonable assumption for them to make. And then when he doesn't die, for a people whose culture is very much based on their gods and goddesses arriving in dramatic fashion, such as out of the sea, I think it's a reasonable assumption for them to make that Paul must be, in fact, a god. Either way, I just want us to uh, be able to place ourselves in their shoes a little bit, to see that these people's beliefs are not unreasonable, that they are actually following the beliefs of their time, their culture. And this leads to their actions. It leads them into several different things. It leads them to be hospitable, to be kind. It also leads them to be quick to judge, to look for the miraculous. And it also leads them into a life of wealth and ease. These people have an easy life on this island. Now there are, of course, uh, problems. They have, they have sickness and disease like any culture. I think there's actually a lot of parallels that we can draw between the people of Malta and our culture. Like I said, they live this life of relative wealth and ease compared to much of the rest of the world. They seek to be hospitable and kind to those in need. They believe strongly in justice. There are several different parallels that I think show that these people are very similar to our culture in many ways. 
We also see that not only do they believe strongly in justice, but they are quick to believe that if something bad happens to someone, it's probably their fault, which again is a fairly common belief for the cultures of the time. The concept of an eye for an eye was a very widespread belief. If something bad happened to someone, it must have been their fault. It's really still a pretty common belief. Even if our culture doesn't necessarily shout it from the rooftops, I think we have a tendency to see those who are successful and wealthy as people to emulate and those who are poor or ill or disfigured as almost having done something to deserve that lot. Our culture and our media pushes these ideas. I think over the last couple of chapters, we can see that Paul does not fit this mold that the people of Malta does. We can see Paul as someone who fights against the cultural beliefs of his time. He's not swayed by these beliefs. He's a person who has stood firm through the struggles of false accusations, imprisonment, constant rejection, storm, shipwreck, and now snakebite and judgment. He's withstood these things with calm grace and a firm belief that his God is leading him somewhere for a purpose. This morning, I want us to look at how our lives and beliefs stack up against Paul. Are we living our lives following God's call, following God's purpose? Or are we closer to the people of Malta, following the trends of our times, comfortable in our beliefs and easy lives? Jim talked to us last week about how important it is for us to stay steadfast through the storms in our lives not allowing our beliefs to be tossed to and fro by the circumstances that we face. Because we are all going to face bad circumstances in our lives. Our world is full of sin and struggle, and it doesn't really matter how comfortable or easy our lives might be in the moment, eventually we're going to have to face storms and struggles. Whether it's an illness, loss of a job, change of our circumstances, or even loneliness or heartbreak, the the list can go on and on. We all will face something hard that will test us. Now, I think if you're a Christian in this room, most likely you share a majority of Paul's beliefs. You believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You believe that following Jesus is important and that the way we live our lives out showcases those beliefs. That's awesome. I want us to kind of peel a layer deeper, to dive a little bit into our own beliefs, which might get a little uncomfortable. Like the people of Malta, whose beliefs were reasonable and modern for their times, or like Sir Walter Raleigh, who allowed a single false belief to completely destroy his life and many others, I think it can be easy to allow our beliefs and our lives to slowly be shaped by the things around us. I think we need to spend some time looking at our lives, looking at how we respond to the circumstances that we're going through, looking at how we live out our life and our call in order to evaluate what we actually believe. And this might be just me, but if I do that, when I do that, and I look closely at my own life, I think it shows that there are some holes in my belief. If our beliefs shape how we live our lives, then we should be able to look 
at how we live our lives and react to the circumstances around us as an evaluative tool for what our beliefs actually are. It's important that we do this. As believers, God has placed a specific call on our lives and it's important that we evaluate whether we are following it or not. And our beliefs are at the core of how we live our life. A couple of weeks ago in our young adult group, we were talking about why we don't obey Jesus's commands to go and share the good news of the gospel with those around us. And we kind of came back around to this concept. If we aren't obeying Jesus, then there must be a disconnect between our beliefs and what he has said. I made the statement to them that if we aren't obeying Jesus, then we must not love him like we say we do. I wasn't trying to be harsh. I just wanted them to understand that if our lives don't reflect the beliefs we say we have, then we don't really have those beliefs. There must be a disconnect. We need to evaluate ourselves, look at our lives, look at our actions, and see where those holes in our beliefs are, where we have let other things influence and creep into our beliefs. So that's, what we're go- that's where we're going to go this morning. I want us to evaluate our lives and beliefs and see if we need to rethink them. See if we need to realign what we believe with the gospel. In order to do that, I want us to look at what Paul actually believed that caused him to be able to live this life that is so effective in following the call of God and is so able to handle the storms of his life. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read a passage from Romans chapter 8 that I think gives us three beliefs that Paul has that allows him to live so effectively and to stick so closely to God's call despite everything that he's going through. Starting in verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters." 
And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. I think in this passage, we see three specific beliefs that Paul has that are at the core of who he is. Number one, we see that Paul has a hope for Jesus' glorious return. Paul has his hope firmly set, not on the things of this world, not on relief from his circumstances, not on wealth, not on ease, not on a comfortable life. Instead, his hope is firmly fixed on the coming glory of Jesus' return. Paul believes that this is the specific medicine that will cure all problems, that everything in the world is eagerly hoping for and anticipating for this. All of creation's decay, all of our sufferings, all of the labor pains and groanings of this world are in anticipation of this hope to come. Paul has his sights firmly fixed on this hope. He says that it's for this hope that we are saved that our adoption as sons and daughters of the Most High, the redemption of our bodies and erasing of illness and disease, all of these things are wrapped up in Jesus' glorious return. Paul believes that creation awaits this redemption with eager longing and that we should too. In fact, Paul says that even when we do not know how to wait patiently for that, we should lean into the Holy Spirit who will wait for us, helping us in our weakness. I think we see that this truth is the underlying basis of everything else that Paul believes. It's what gives Paul his hope for the future, allowing him to press on and continue striving and following the calling of God through all sorts of trials and tribulations that he goes through. Number two, I think we see that Paul has a hope in his adoption into God's eternal family. Paul knows that his present circumstances are just the aftershocks of a world where sin once reigned supreme. He has his hope firmly fixed in the world to come, in this promise of adoption into Jesus's eternal family, where his place is secure. No storm, viper, religious persecution, or Roman legion can take away his eternal place in God's kingdom. Paul knows that his work and call has a direct impact on this kingdom and this family that he's building the kingdom of God through what he's being called to do. He's building a family that will never go away. And so it's worth it. It's worth the struggle. It's worth the pain that he goes through. We see throughout Paul's writings that he's constantly talking about how important the churches are to him, how much he has given for their success, how much he loves them. I think we see that Paul's status as a member of God's adopted family is one of his core primary beliefs. Number three, we see Paul has a hope in God's eternal purpose. Paul believes that although he may not be able to see past the current storm, although he may not know what is coming next, that God's plan is perfect, that it will be for his good. Despite the struggles and pain, Paul has hope that God knows exactly what he's doing. And that plan includes good for Paul. Paul has hope that what God says is true. 
that God foreknew him, predestined him, called him, justified him, and would finally glorify him. No matter what Paul's life or circumstances look like, Paul has hope that he can trust in his good, good father to complete the work that he started and have it be for Paul's good. There are plenty more beliefs and truths that we could look at throughout scripture for Paul. But I think these three things are foundational for what he believes. And they impact his life. Are they foundational for us? Are these the things that are driving us, that are fueling how we live our lives? In a minute, we're going to be done. We're going to spend a couple of minutes in reflection. And I'm going to ask you to consider your own life. Consider your own actions and what that tells you about your beliefs. It might be uncomfortable, and it probably should be, as we look at how we actually live our lives and consider if what we say we believe is true. Do we believe in these three things? Before we do that, however, I want to look at what the fruit of these beliefs are in Paul's life. We've seen that they bear fruit in how he approaches his circumstances. They bear fruit in his demeanor and his attitude. He makes it through this shipwreck. He helps his captors to build a fire. He gets bitten by this deadly viper and simply shakes it off into the fire. And then he continues on his way through unjust accusation and then even improper worship. But the major fruit of Paul's belief is that he continues to follow God's call through all of this. And it has a huge impact on the people of this island. We see that Paul spends three months on this island, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, and focusing on the good news of Jesus Christ, and it impacts these people. I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, Sam told us about how Paul spent two years in prison preaching the gospel message to the same few people over and over and over and over again. And it was futile. There was never any success. These people weren't changed. Well, here, he spends three months, he stays true to his calling, he continues to preach the gospel, and the impact is immense. History tells us that Paul's impact on the island of Malta was incredible. The gospel message firmly took root here. Publius, the island chief that we see took Paul in, becomes a Christian and actually becomes the bishop of this island, goes on to be martyred many years later and was made one of the patron saints of Malta. Christianity sweeps across the island of Malta and even many years later through Muslim occupation, it holds on. Paul found himself on an island full of people who had not heard the message of the gospel. And even though he was a prisoner, even though they were judging him and then elevating him to godhood, he stayed firm, he stayed fast to his call, he preached the gospel message, and it bore incredible fruit. I can't help but compare Paul and Sir Walter Raleigh, both said to be men of great faith, yet one followed closely to his beliefs and hope in Jesus, and his life bore incredible fruit while the other clung on to his false belief in a worldly rumor of wealth that caused destruction and countless deaths. So like I said, I want to end with this question. What do we believe? 
And this is so important for us to evaluate because we may not have the impact that a Paul or a Sir Walter Raleigh had on history, but our beliefs definitely impact those around us. And it's important for us to look at how we live our lives, how we follow God's call on our life, and see if our beliefs are actually what we say they are. So we're going to spend a couple of minutes asking ourselves that question. If you're here today and the question is actually pretty simple to answer because you just don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I would really encourage you to think about what your hope is in. Jesus provides hope and security through even the darkest of circumstances. If you're here today and you are a Christian, but you look at your life and you just don't see the fruit of working for God's call, please look soberly at your beliefs. Maybe you have been caught up in a false belief. Maybe your hope has been twisted into something other than Jesus' promises. We all face hard circumstances, and maybe that has been making you fix your eyes on some other hope and belief than Jesus. Church, fixing your hope and belief on Jesus is worth it. He loves you. At the end of this passage in Romans chapter 8, Paul asks us this incredible question. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And his answer is this. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you place your hope and belief in Jesus Christ and his promises, it's worth it. If you follow his call on your life, it is worth it. Nothing can separate you from his life from his love. This doesn't mean you won't face hard circumstances. You will. But you can face them like Paul did, confident in the love and plan of Jesus Christ. The church, we're going to spend a few minutes in reflection, a few minutes on this question of whether your life reflects the things you say you believe. And then we're going to continue in worship.